Walking into this, I knew that there were some recent Tales of games, which I hadn't played. And one of them was considered pretty darn good, and the other one was considered kind of not. And I was like, which one is which? I hope this one's the good one, because I actually really enjoyed this game. I, I, I did actually end up asking someone, like, which one was supposed to be the good one? And apparently it is this one. Although, funnily enough, Zysteria is apparently supposed to be the bad one. You know, the one that this is a prequel to. Anyways. I want to say really quick a couple things. First of all, I really enjoyed the combat of this one. I, it's actually kind of hard to explain why. I mean, I've enjoyed the Tales of format for quite a while. Shifting into a full 3D plane still felt very natural and logical to me, since it wasn't quite a full 3D plane in the strictest sense of the words. Everyone was still playing on axes to each other. It's just that axes was, you know, like this rather than just being a straight line to each other. So I liked it, and I was still enjoying it. Um, I love the ability to queue up uh, 16 things at once. That's awesome. And just be able to go, okay, or in order to get to each of the abilities. That's an awesome system, and I would love to see more of that in the future. I, I, I don't know. The combat was very smooth and enjoyable. It also produced a weird kind of cacophony effect. Like, I don't know about you guys, but it got to a certain point, especially basically by the end of the game, where any given combat was filled with, yeah, I will destroy you, and then, bam, 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 as I'm just layering attacks one one after another on top of people. Um, it got very amusing. I also like the idea of Break Souls being a way... I enjoy the gameplay concept in general of something where you gain benefit in exchange for cost. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but what I mean by that is it's a cost-reward-benefit analysis in gameplay terms. The fact that, you know, Velvet is the most obvious one to talk about, the one where she can just crush the ever-living crap out of things and gains immunity to quite a few things while her health slowly bleeds out. So, you're on a timer, make it work, you know, stuff like that. I enjoy that, I enjoy that. I also like the souls in general. I like this kind of system. A few RPGs over the years have used this kind of system. Uh, I refer to it as in-battle currency, which means that it only really affects this one given fight, and you can waste it by basically not using it, but it also can only be generated under the right circumstances, and you have to use it very precisely, otherwise it'll be misused. Um, the, uh, what do they call it, the AP in Octopath Traveler, or, you know, the Brave uh, and the, the Default system over in Bravely Default are both similar examples of the same type of concept, and I, I found that an enjoyable way to kind of flesh out the combat past the usual gain abilities, crush the enemy, move around, etc., etc., the one and only complaint I would say to have is that it feels like, for the most part, positioning doesn't seem to matter. Like, obviously there's a lot of movement for some of the party members' attacks, but it didn't really seem to matter since mo there wasn't a lot of area denial or terrain relevance when it came to the combat. I also loved comboing, just in general. Comboing was a lot of fun. It's funny because the game I played right before this was The World Ends With You, where comboing was basically the name of the game in that game. So it, it just kind of slotted neatly in in my brain. Now the next thing I want to talk about gameplay-wise is something that's not quite gameplay, but technically is. It's the skits. I really like the skits in the Tales of games in general. Tales of Graces is the last one I remember seeing. Er... Maybe still shoot. I don't remember. I got to be honest. I get their names confused. I'm I'm actually not. I f I really enjoyed the Tales of series right up until about the GameCube, and then by basically coincidence, I kind of fell out of it. So the only actual Tales of game I've played past Symphonia 
is Abyss, which I played for Rumination. But I have seen gameplay of quite a few other of the Tales of, and there was one that that really started going hog wild with the skits concept. And I love the skits concept. Um, it's something that I think RPGs could use more of. It's not the ideal perfect way because you know the ideal perfect way to be have fully motion acted, motion captured, voice acted, awesome. But it's a good way to add more story to a game in a way that doesn't really destroy the budget both in terms of time and in terms of money. So we get more characterization, we get more setting building, we get more interactions, we get more fun. A whole lot of stuff. How much of the characterization of these characters in this game is set on the skits, you know? So, first of all, Magalu's Menagerie. <laughs> um, let's talk about Rokuru first, because... He's an extremely typical character, which is typical for Tales of Concepts. Tales of games in general tend to usually have two types of characters. Straight-up cliches or completely subverted cliches. Rokuru is a straight-up cliche. I'm not saying that as a complaint, by the way. Rather, to me, he seems like the embodiment of someone leaning in one direction. Now, explain what I mean by that slightly more specifically. He is someone who obviously isn't really what you'd call a good person. He uh, pretty much flat out admits the whole reason he went after his brother was because of envy, because you know he wanted to, to screw with him and take, take him down and all that fun stuff. Now, over the course of the game, he does eventually learn to actually respect his brother. But my point for bringing that up is that he is someone who, if this was a mundane setting, without magic and superpowers and demons and the demon curse of the seraphim and all that fun stuff, if this was just Earth, you know, mundane earth, he would probably not be a good person. Not evil, though. And that's something I want to make very clear, because that's going to be a recurring trend. He would be leading towards the, the, the eviler side of the force. Now, this is something that doesn't negate him from being a kind or nice person. It just means that his motivations lend themselves more towards evilly kind of things, or selfishy kind of things. But his actions can still indicate an actual... Uh, consequence of helping people. The fact that he actually goes out of his way to help people multiple times, even in the ending, I feel like pointing out, kind of shows the kind of mentality this guy has. Sorry, the ending's very fresh in my mind because I, you know, I just beat the game. Which brings me, of course, to Eleanor. Eleanor is kind of the flip of that. She's someone who obviously believes more in the positive side of things, the goody side of the force. She's someone who wants to help and to take care of and aid and we see in her the kind of idea of someone who, despite her legitimately good intentions, despite her purity of soul, if you will, the fact remains that she is willing to perpetuate not particularly good things. She is willing to try and accomplish negative acts in order to accomplish a greater positive, a net positive outcome. Thus, we can see she's kind of the inverse coin of Rokuru. Oh, and also, apparently, there's some kind of Eleanor Velvet ship thing. I don't even know what that's about. Both of these characters, I, I know this is going to sound weird, especially for a Tales of game, although I feel like I had the same problem in Abyss. I don't have a lot to say about most of the characters, but I feel like both of these characters serve as a nice comparison point to the central character, Velvet. See, Velvet is someone who goes through multiple character arcs throughout the game, which is awesome. I feel like pointing out. I do wish she had finally found some actual clothes. I mean, for God's sakes, how many towns have we gone through? We've got money. Just go to the store. Get an outfit. God. 
<laughs> Funnily enough, you can actually do that in the game, but in, in lore, she never does. She's still wearing the I threw this together because I don't care outfit for most of the, the presentation. Anyways. <clears throat> but I point out Velvet because she starts off as the nicest, sweetest person you could think of. Um, descends very violently into basically a monster. Oh, I don't, I don't, I'm not talking about the arm thing. I just mean her personality is that she is a monster. And then as she continues to act and interact, well, see, the problem is Velvet is not an evil person. So she is bothered by being a monster. She keeps doing it. She chooses to keep doing ill acts because she believes that the consequences of that are acceptable for what she is trying to reach. The cost of consequence, as I like to call that. So she believes the cost is acceptable. Okay, sure. But she feels bad about it. She feels guilty about it. She cares, obviously. There's this wonderful scene where she is then confronted with the truth. Now, what I like most about this scene is that it is one of the most damaging scenes to her specifically because it is the truth. Now, this is still a manipulation. Enomonot, uh, uh, God, <laughs> stumbling over his name there for a second. Enomonot is trying to expose her to despair so that she can be consumed. That That's the only goal here. But her despair is very real because all of the things that are being thrown at her are, in fact, legitimate grievances that she herself has already had. So she accepts. She relents. It is Fee who decides to go ahead and say, yeah, nin, 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 nin. Hang, hang on, hang on, I'm not going to let you do this. And she's like, why? I am a monster. Fee's response says everything that needs to be said about that, which I'll cover in just a second. But then she starts her next character arc, which at this point would be technically her second or third, depending how you define it, character arcs, where she tries to actually utilize her position and... and perspectives in order to accomplish a greater good rather than simply uh, pursuing revenge and also starting to acknowledge some of the variances and nuances of reality which I'll cover in just a moment but I mention I mentioned this thing that Fee said because that's the most important one he says how she I should have written down the whole speech but you know it's a cutscene I can't pause it um, and you, you were scary you, you tried to eat me you were terrifying, but then you were kind and nice and sweet, and you helped me, and right? Like I, and you could tell Fee is just kind of flabbergasted by this. And so he decides that he's not actually going to allow her in order to, 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 to go on and deal with this thing. He's going to try and save her, and that's what eventually breaks her out of it, to the point where she accepts his offer, his, his outreached hand, his left hand, because his right hand's being devoured, um, in order to bring her back from... Well, the despair brink. And that begins basically the second half of the game, which is also arguably the main chunk and focus of the game. See, everything I've been saying here has all been the same thing expressed in a complexity, which is itself the very point. Yes, I'm getting meta with my own rumination on this one. Hear me out. For those of you not aware, I have a concept called bullet point syndrome. Now, I tend to despise bullet pointing in general because... Well, by the very nature, bullet pointing will never get across specificity and nuance. It will never get across details. It will never get across flavor. It is a condensed, summarized version of events, things, purposes, whatever. Now, that can be purposeful in its own right. But the reason I don't do... do blah, blah, blah. The reason I don't do that here, the reason my ruminations last until I run out of things to talk about, is because I want to try and express to you the full nuance as best as I'm capable. 
Now, I can only do so much. I'm a fleshy, flawed human just like everyone else. But I do my best to accomplish basically the diametric opposite of bullet point syndrome. Because bullet pointing is, to tie it back into the game, people are good, people are evil. Both of these bullet points, if you're paying attention, are wrong. However, you could also argue that both of them are correct from certain points of view. Because if you summarize things excessively enough, if you take out all of that nuance and meaning and subtlety and complexity, what you have is a bullet point that says, good, or bad, and that's it. What this game is entirely about, and I find this overall theme fascinating, is nuance, is complexity. Let me approach this from a different angle. Because one of the things I, most, I find most fascinating about this game is that they actually mention in the ending, and I wrote it down here, that this, what they did as a consequence of everything they do throughout the course of the game is they made things harder for everyone. You know, they have made it so that all of the checks and balances and pieces that were in place to try and make things work are now removed. So now the remaining people are going to have a much harder time of it. But they are going to be allowed to have the time of it that they choose to. Now, this isn't a free will thing, per se, although that's kind of related. But this is more of a... <sighs> Let me put it to you this way. Um, I hate to use this analogy, but I'm failing at coming up with another one off the top of my head, so here's what we're going to go with. Let us say that you have a law. And this law says anybody who picks up a poker chip is guilty and should die. Okay, that's the law. Hear me out. So, someone wanders over, picks up a poker chip, is like, oh, what's this? And you say, oh, okay, you're, you're, you're a subject now. Now, let's say someone comes over and very carefully and quietly steals a poker chip and just kind of slides it into his pocket. There we go. And then he's caught. Oh, my God. And he gets pulled away. And you have to try both of these people. Okay? Now, if you follow the law, then both of these people die. You paying attention? Because I hope you are. I'm trying really hard not to get this controversial because I'm not trying to speak about legality. That's not the point. The point is thinking. The point is understanding that if you try to make a rule for life, it, it by definition, cannot apply to everything equally. Life is simply too varied, too nuanced, too complex. So, in other words, you could just follow the rule and say, kill kill and that's the end of that or and and that would be easy just like it was easy before the end of the game but what is much more difficult what is harder to do is to look at the circumstances try to find the specifics try to glean what you can from there from the injunction basically to put them through an actual investigation which is harder to do and then once you have done so deciding based on those findings what you should do and based on the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law Make sense? In other words, it is harder to do the nuanced and complex thing. And that's the whole point of the game. And we see multiple viewpoints of this at multiple times. My favorite, uh, so I've, see, I've seen some people say that this game is all about emotion versus reason, but I actually don't quite agree with that. You could say it's about emotion versus reason, because Velvet herself is in the middle of that exact equation. Velvet is someone who is consumed with her emotion, her malice, you know, her, her hatred, and her despair. But in both perspectives, as she is consumed by this, she is tempering all of that with her reason. 
with her mentality, with her perspective, with what she thinks is right or wrong, and her own opinions, her personality, which all change, too, as other variables are added to the equation. Let me use a different analogy, okay? I think this one might resonate with people better. How many of you guys have played Super Mario 64? Or any of the old 3D games, PS1 or N64 stuff, right? Now, I bring that up because if you look at those characters, you can tell that that's Mario. I'm going to keep using Mario. You can tell that's Mario, but just barely, right? Because he is not a very complex model. He only has so many polygons, right? There's only, there's only so much complexity to his design. Then, If you put him alongside the one from Mario Sunshine, or the one from Mario Galaxy, or the one from Mario Odyssey, the jumps in quality might not be obvious, but each one has more detail, more nuance, more complexity, making for a more fleshed out, fully developed thing that you can see more of and, and get more out of, right? <laughs> That's Velvet, because she is someone who has a lot of complexity to her. She takes multiple different variables. All the party members she interacts with, all the NPCs she interacts with. When she goes to a ball, or a, a ball, or however the hell they freaking said that town name, and it's like, hey, a ball? I think it's a ball. Um, it's, it's been a few hours since I've been there. Um, and by a few hours, I mean yesterday. Anyway, she gets to a ball, and she's like, oh, my God, look, and all this stuff, and she sees additional variables being tacked upon her. When she finds out about the plan, about what's going on exactly with the Imperians and why they're acting the way they are, all of this just adds more and more depth to her and to her perspective. And thus, she is a fully fleshed out, fully realized character throughout the whole thing. This is, of course, even made an irony of because it's implied that she'll be remembered as a villain or a hero, depending on who's remembering her. But in both cases, it's, it gets a little bit simplified over time, taking away from the complexity of the real person, which, of course, brings me to the way I want to put this. Because, again, I said it's not quite emotion versus reason, even though that is velvet in a nutshell. The overall thing seems to be more about focusing versus patterning. Let me explain what I mean by that. Patterning is obvious, right? All right, here's a grid. This grid is exactly three units by three units. Bam. So it's nine square units. Repeat this grid infinitely. Pattern. The whole world being a three by three grid, right? That's exactly what Artur... Well, actually, Melkor, really, more than anyone else wants, but that's exactly what Arturius is kind of working for. The idea that if we completely remove the equation, if we remove all those variables, remove all that nuance, then what we are left with is something that no longer has the bad sides of the nuance. Because nuance does add make things worse in many ways. It does make things more difficult, more complex, and it allows for horrible things to happen. Of course, we see uh, Lafayette is probably the, or Lafayette, seriously, Fee is probably the most obvious example of the opposite side of that, which is focus. Rather than making every square a three by three square, why not look down and say, well, this square should be like, kind of like a, loose, like, make it like a river line over here on this edge. And rather than making it a square at all, we're just going to have this be like this completely non definable shape. And there's going to be like this inlet right here. And then we're going to do this. And like a star edge right on the edge here. There we go. Focusing in on the specific thing to decide, based on the specific circumstances, what this, as a case-by-case -case thing, should be. You with me? And that's Fee. In fact, that's exactly what Fee chooses at the end when he decides to become the new fifth Imperion. 
I very much enjoy this. If it's not obvious from the way I'm gushing about this, this overall theme really resonated with me because, well, because it's a very mature, complex theme, which tales of games tend to be good at in general, but also because it's something that I personally do legitimately believe in. I believe in complexity. I believe in nuance. I believe in subtlety. And I believe that those things are both good and bad. That's the point. But what I want to talk about, really, is how messed up this whole situation really is. Because this whole thing, this this whole... The theme of the game is, of course, everything I just said. And I don't want to keep rambling on about it, so I think we'll chop it off there. But I do want to talk about the specific reason why this theme is so predominant in this game. And it's all because the Seraphs are dicks. I love this and hate it at the same time. The whole idea is that, so there's the seraphim, and they're like, ah, and then people, oh. And the malevolence of the people was legitimately toxic to the seraph, right? It, it poisoned them, it hurt them, so they have to deal with that. But, well, the most obvious way to deal with that in your typical, you know, mechanized kind of orderly sort of thinking is to just wipe the board clean, make everything a three-by-three three grid, right? However, some of the Seraph didn't really agree with that. They're like, no, 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 no. We can make this work. It's just going to be more difficult. It's going to be harder. So we can do this. And thus the Seraph themselves became, became divided between the people who wanted the simplicity, the bullet points, versus the people who wanted the nuance and complexity. Now it's worth noting, I'm saying this, obviously I'm on the side of complexity. I think I've made that very clear. But it's worth noting that in a total reality situation, you have to admit Neither side's really right. Like, nuance and complexity allows for many good and great things to happen. It also allows for many terrible and awful things to happen. It's one thing to say, you know, to walk up to someone and say, Hey, kiddo, I know that you don't, you don't like the fact that we haven't done more security precautions for this spaceship. But on the plus side, uh, you know, even though your parents are dead because of some terrorist attack, the good news is you can go play ball without having to be in a restricted area or whatever, right? Like, when you get down to the micro scale, you can very much see the flaws of the idea of nuance and complexity. But I'm getting a little bit off topic. Let's get back to the seraphim. So, they make this curse, which is basically designed to turn both of the, their obstacles into something that are obstacles for each other rather than for them. Turning humans into demons and the, uh, the Maliks into dragons. And thus they end up feeding on and consuming each other, the idea being to remove them from the equation. And then everything will be a three-by-three three grid, and it'll be great! Now, obviously, that didn't quite work out. The Empyreans are the biggest obstacle to this, but what I find most amusing about the Empyreans in particular is the fact that the four Empyreans make perfect sense. Basis of reality, right? You know, earth, fire, wind, water, sure. What the hell was up with the fifth one? Now, before I answer that question, I'm going to go you know, pause if, you, if you'd like to. I would like to know your thoughts on why there was a fifth. What's the purpose of the fifth Imperium, okay? Now, I bring that up because for the longest time it was bothering me. It was like, why would there be an Imperium of suppression? What does that have to do with anything? If anything, the idea of a fifth element in this concept, no reference to the movie, would, would to me imply the idea of consciousness, spirit, life, you know, whatever you want to call that, the, the nuance in between the four, right? So why is he the suppression? Well, seeing that this is a direct response, a direct uh, counteraction to the Seraphim curse, suddenly makes that make a lot more sense. He is quite literally the, the, the Empyrean of suppression. 
not just on the people and the Maliks, but also on the elemental power of the world itself. The idea being that suppression, we always think of that as a bad thing because it's usually used in a bad way when it comes to you know, English. But suppression also is another word for control. And control, well, is also a word that's used in a bad way, but control just means taking care of things. In fact, if you're paying attention, this ties once again into the meta theme of complexity and nuance. Control doesn't mean everything is locked down forever. Control means be knowing how to how to be able to pick up this toothpick right here without snapping it. I mean, I, I didn't quite snap it, but you know, it's it's severely bent now as a consequence of that. Because I decided to apply my strength correctly. I controlled it. I suppressed it. Make sense? Now this all then makes the events of the game very ironic in their own right, because the impression is given very strongly that this cycle, which has been going on for a while, it's, it's actually kind of a messed up cycle if you think about it, because it's like, okay, so all the malevolence feeds into the Therions, which feeds... Oh, God, it's something I can think of his name. <laughs> Dude face. <laughs> um... I wrote down his name at least somewhere. Inomina. Uh, there we go. Inomina. 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 Dude, white gold hair. That guy. Anyways, <laughs> all that malevolence that slowly builds up from people feeds him, and he takes takes in the pieces from the Therion, and then he three by three grids the world. But because the the world is all three by three gridded, he can't exist anymore. Or, or to be slightly more accurate, he can't be functional anymore. So he goes into, he falls into a hibernation, basically. Then the four Imperians who are left behind decide, okay, they run around and start fixing everything to make it, you know, better again. And then over time, the the increased malevolence of people starts waking him up again, and then the whole thing repeats. The idea here is that the cycle has been irrevocably broken, which effectively sidesteps the curse of the Seraphim. If you're thinking about it. Rather than actually breaking it or, or dispelling it, it's just they've made it irrelevant because the cycle can't continue anymore. People now have to figure things out for themselves. And, well, I'm guessing we'll see the consequences of this in uh, Zestiria, which, for the record, I haven't played or even read up on, so I don't even know what happens in that one. It's a very interesting situation. Makes me want to slug the Seraphim, though. <laughs> just, hi, hi, what's up? <laughs> Anyways. I did enjoy this game a lot, actually. This is easily in the running now for my favorite Tales of game. I wish I had more time to play it in a more leisurely pace, but unfortunately, it's not just, just not a thing in my life. But, you know, minor complaint. It was still a treat to go through. Hope you guys enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you next time.